Everyone has a different relationship with food and their body. For some, this relationship turns into disordered eating and can have a significant impact on mental health and wealth. In this episode, we chat about food, body image, disordered eating, and mental health. If you need help with an eating disorder, please call or text 800-931-2237. The Mental Health and Wealth Show. The Mental Health and Wealth Show. The Mental Health and Wealth Show. Thank you so much for listening to the Mental Health and Wealth Show. This is host Melanie Locker. And first of all, I want to acknowledge that you are brave and amazing for being here. Getting ready to listen to a show about mental health and money is not easy, and I know you are ready for these amazing conversations. But before you listen, I want to let you know that all of my content is based on my own personal experience with mental health and money, as well as the experiences and expertise of my guests. I'm not a mental health professional or a financial professional, so content should not be considered professional, medical, or financial advice. As a trigger warning, please note that content on the show may include sensitive topics around mental health and suicide. So if you're currently in distress, please get in touch with a professional by texting HOME to 741-741. Thank you so much and enjoy the show. This is Melanie Lockhart, host of the Mental Health and Wealth Show. Today, I'm chatting with Rahel Heinemann, who is a licensed mental health counselor based in NYC and Brooklyn. She specializes in the treatment of eating disorders and emotional eating, as well as exercise addiction and body image struggles. Rahel is trained as a psychoanalytic psychotherapist and works with her clients to find meaning in their lives and attain long-lasting results. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited. I'm super excited to have you here. I know we're going to be talking about food and money and depression and anxiety. I know a lot of people have complicated relationships with food, and it's something that definitely affects people's mental health and money. So I just wanted to start off by saying, you know, what similarities do you see between the way people manage their food and manage their money? Yeah. So it's a really interesting question because it first came up when I was training people for eating disorders. And we would kind of get some of those behaviors down. But then what I would see is that a lot of similarities would come up in their relationship with money. So for example, this restrict binge cycle where they would restrict food and then binge, they very often would happen with the money. So they would not spend money or or kind of be really obsessive about a 10 cent difference of this brand over that brand or go on a shopping spree where they'd spend thousands and thousands of dollars that they don't have. Um, I would say a really big one is the stuff underneath it. So a lot of obsession over the details, counting calories or money, deliberating over purchases or the money that they earned or saved or their food choices or the amount that they exercise is just like a lot of obsession and very often a lot of guilt related to food and money behaviors. Interesting. So I think there are so many similarities, as you mentioned, between the way people treat money and the way people treat food. And when I was listening to you talk about it, I kept thinking, it sounds like a lot of this has to do with control. So can you speak on kind of how people get to that place where it seems like they really want to control their environment with what's their input and their output? And how do people get to that kind of disordered place? 
Yeah, that's a really good question. I think that it's very difficult for people to manage stressful situations, you know, especially if it feels chaotic, disorganized, very out of control. And it's so easy to point to something tangible like food or money to control the environment. So while the feelings of chaos or or lack of control are internal, we try to externalize it and say, if I can only control my food intake or my money habits, then I will feel more in control. And I guess what's kind of complicated is very often they do. It does help, only it helps superficially. Definitely. And at what point do you kind of feel that someone goes beyond just, I'm taking care of my physical health, I'm taking care of my financial health, to I have an issue? So I would say that it's mostly in the mindset that if it becomes something that takes over their day and they're thinking about it all the time and they're obsessing about it, um, say, for example, a normal person thinks about food or money, say 15% of the day because they have to eat, they have to spend money and, you know, they're making money. But for somebody who kind of crosses that line into something disordered, it would be a lot higher percentage of the day. So obsessing about it, thinking about it a lot, um, taking over. So driving their decisions. Um, They might not want to go to a social gathering or an event because there's food, because there's too much money involved, or it's just too much anxiety around the food or money. So when it really takes over their relationships and their lives and their minds, that's when I would say it becomes an issue. So you said it really kind of starts with this mindset where the obsession starts to form where it takes up the majority of your day. And I can totally see how that is a problem, you know, considering different issues in my life where it seems like that is the main preoccupation is you're thinking about it all the time, every day. How does that manifest itself in behaviors? I know that there's bulimia, there's anorexia, um, body dysmorphia, there's lots of different issues. Can you speak on kind of how it's manifested? So a lot of the eating disorders kind of revolve around a couple of, uh, I guess, key behaviors. So there's the restricting, which is very much in anorexia nervosa, um, but it's not only in that disorder. So that would mean any sort of place on the continuum of severe restriction. And then there's the binging, which is an uncontrolled sort of eating. And when I say uncontrolled, it's more of a feeling of out of control and not so much actually what's going on. Although very often it does seem like a very large quantity of food done in silence with a lot of shame. And then there's the purging part, which can be any sort of compensatory behavior. So uh, very often it's self-induced vomiting, but we've seen more often than not, it's exercise bulimia, where the person is kind of working off everything that they're eating. And so a lot of these diagnoses are some sort of combination. And what's ironic, and people don't necessarily know this, but the most common eating disorder is the not otherwise specified category where someone might fall into a box of anorexia or bulimia or binge eating disorder. But more often than not, we see just kind of a whole bunch of pieces and someone kind of like living their own sort of very personalized eating disorder. Interesting. So I think, you know, a lot of this really has to do with this kind of obsession with 
diet culture. And, you know, diet culture is a buzzword these days. There's lots of kind of conversations around that happening. At my Women in Money event, Lola Retreat, which I had a couple of years ago, we had a wonderful session by Melissa Burton called Why Diet Culture is Making You Broke. And pretty much we talked about kind of the billions of dollars women are spending on trying to remain thin, to get thin on diet pills, on food programs, on exercise programs. Can you explain what diet culture is? And also, I love your insight on how this is making people broke and like what's compelling people to spend so much money on all of these things. Absolutely. I mean, diet culture is exactly what it sounds like. It's this cultural obsession with thinness and fitness, uh, clean eating to have this perfect body. And what the industry does is capitalize on our lack of confidence or insecurities about how we feel about ourselves or how we look. And so they will kind of have you think that you're doing this wrong. You purchased my product, but you haven't lost weight, but there's something wrong with you. And then you go back for more. So this hyper-focusing on dieting and fat phobia and judgment of people who are not in the thin ideal body kind of keeps this billions of dollar industry in power. And we almost give them that power. Their marketing is so, so strong. And we kind of always fall back into it. Yeah, I think diet culture is so pervasive. And even just the language that we use, I mean, the term clean eating. So are we to assume that everything else is just dirty eating, you know, and that kind of contributes to shame and guilt. And, you know, then when we have these emotions around food, then we're going to have a complicated relationship with how we eat and how we manage food. And, you know, I've often thought of like, what would my mindset be like if I never saw an ad, if I never saw ads of like very thin, very tall supermodels, you know, what would my mind be like? Because I think so many of us get these images from a very young age, especially women. We're bombarded with these images since we're a child. And that's just how we grow up. We think that we're supposed to be thin and pretty. We know that being thin and pretty is a form of currency. It's a form of power. And these industries, like you were saying, have manipulated it to their advantage because they want to say, if you just buy this diet pill, if you just buy this program, if you just buy this cream, if you just, you know, buy this, you can have this dream too. And women are spending billions of dollars on this. And I keep thinking, if women even spent 10% of what they do on beauty and wellness and put it in retirement, like, oh my gosh, that would change the financial landscape for so many women. And no judgment. I mean, I'm totally guilty of spending money on things related to beauty and wellness and food too. Like, I'm not any better than anybody. Like, we're all just stuck in this system that is very pervasive and so hard to get out of. Yeah. I mean, I would say that a lot of those purchases aren't bad. So if you love putting on makeup or you like, or you prefer to eat organic or to, you know, have salad and spend money on that kind of thing, that's totally fine. You know, it's when it kind of goes to the next level and we're spending 
more than we have, more than we should be spending, and when it kind of takes over. Something that you had said before reminds me of this study that was done in Fiji about uh, with these women who hadn't had any sort of exposure to media, and then they were introduced to TV and ads and all sorts of media, and you saw the level of eating disorders and poor body image just escalate in a matter of months or years, which is so, so sad to hear. That is so painful. And that is so fascinating. And I'm totally not surprised because we're just inundated with these images that affect our consciousness, our subconscious, and the way we view ourselves and the way we view others. And, you know, I just think it's so wild how much of an impact this has. And, you know, with this show, I really want people to have healthy relationships with food, healthy relationships with their body, healthy relationships with their mindset and and love themselves. I know Melissa Burton talked about health at every size, um, you know, and she's very much against fat phobia and she's very much into intuitive eating. We talked a little bit about the symptoms of disordered eating and how it kind of manifests, but I'm curious, what are the mental health issues that come along with that? Yeah. So in terms of comorbidity, there's the full gamut, any sort of diagnoses in a diagnosis in the diagnostic manual can come attached with an eating disorder. I would say the most common ones are depression, anxiety, a trauma history. So PTSD, OCD, which is the obsessions, um, a lot of substance use and kind of connected with a lot of those are lots of isolation, feelings of shame, and very often relationship challenges that kind of are affected because of these mental health issues. Can you go a little bit deeper into what those relationship challenges might look like? Yeah. I mean, there are so many examples, but I guess somebody who is in a crux of their eating disorder is basically in a relationship with their eating disorder. Everything that the eating disorder says they do, they start to isolate themselves because they're you know, either ashamed of going out or just too anxious to be around the food, start to be anxious to be around other people. And even in this sort of situation, if they're in a relationship or they have relationships with friends, they kind of let it fall to the wayside because they're never going out with their friends. They're just kind of staying home and avoiding all of those relationships. So sometimes we see people lose all of their relationships because of it. Oh, that is so extremely tough. I can imagine that eating disorders kind of come first. And so your partnerships, your friendships kind of fall to the wayside when your eating disorder comes first. I know we see this a lot in the addiction space where people quote, choose alcohol or drugs over you know, people and and they lose relationships. But I never really thought about that in the eating disorder space, but I can totally imagine that. And that's so harmful because we need those relationships to feel better and to get back on our feet and to have that love and support. I think with so many mental health issues, such as addiction, eating disorder, OCD, depression, anxiety, we internalize a lot of these feelings as things that are wrong with us, that I should have it all figured out, that I should be able to do this on my own, you know, feelings of shame about how you're behaving. But we really need to reach out to people or have them reach out to us in order to to move on and be able to get the support we need. 
Exactly. I mean, we always say that eating disorders thrive off of secrecy. And so part of the antidote is to reach out, is to talk, is to surround yourself with people and to decrease that isolation. So if someone's listening to the show right now and they are dealing with kind of early symptoms of disordered eating, maybe they have full-blown anorexia or bulimia or body dysmorphia, what are the first steps that they can take right now to be able to get some help? So I would say after someone kind of realizes that this is going on, it's so, so important to talk and really talk to anyone, anyone you trust, a family member, a friend, just kind of sharing what's going on starts to break that secrecy challenge. So I would say definitely just open up to someone. It's obviously so important to reach out to professionals because that's where the work is going to is going to happen. So usually we have someone work with a therapist and a dietitian who specializes in eating disorders and intuitive eating. Sometimes we'll send them for a psych consult and definitely to see a doctor who specializes in eating disorders to make sure that they're physically okay. But I would say if someone's really stuck and doesn't even know where do I start on some of these, you know, in some of these directories, how do I find someone? How do I, like if they're drowning in all this information, I would say some really good resources are um, the National Eating Disorder Association has a helpline. And when you Google them, their number will prop right up and you can call them. You can tell them your situation. They'll point you in the right direction. They might give you some referrals. They might help you just in your mo- in that moment. And then another good resource is the Alliance for Eating Disorder Awareness also has a referral program. So you'd call them up, say where you are, say, I'm looking for a therapist. I'm looking for a dietitian. Can you help me out? Um, I would say that if somebody already knows that they need a higher level of care, so inpatient or residential, partial hospitalization or intensive outpatient, they can definitely ask those two places if they have any sort of resources, um, because it is also so overwhelming to research all these different programs. But someone can just take the first step of meeting with a therapist and then have this sort of in-person or now virtual consult to kind of map out next steps. But I would say just to highlight, it's so important just to talk. Definitely. And I also recommend Open Path Collective to find affordable therapy. You can probably find someone that specializes in disordered eating and someone that can help you there. And thank you so much for sharing all of those resources. That is wonderful. So I'm curious, you know, at what point do you feel like people should get help? Is there any kind of telltale signs where someone's like, okay, this is not just me, quote, eating healthy, whatever that means, but you know, this is something bigger and something deeper. Yeah. Well, I would say the, the sort of line where people cross into, I really need help is different for everyone. And so there are some people that go get help when it's just something that's bothering them a little bit. And some people that are still not so interested in getting help when they're really sick. And so I would say that line to cross to get professional help is is individualized, but definitely the kind of severe restriction or severe binging that we see or frequent binging that we see um, if someone's feeling an intense amount of shame or guilt around their food behaviors, I would say it's time to pick up the phone. 
Thank you so much for sharing that. So I'm curious in your practice, what are kind of the common issues that people are dealing with when it comes to disordered eating? Is there a pattern that triggers this? Is it a family history? Is there an event? You know, kind of how do these things start? Well, it's a really complicated question because if it was if it was simple, then we probably wouldn't need to do all this work to kind of work through it. I would say that there are several different factors to what causes an eating disorder. There is a small percentage that's a genetic predisposition. So if there are family members that are struggling with disordered eating or eating disorder, there's just a higher sort of probability that this person might develop an eating disorder. I would say that it's a small percentage because, um, you know, the saying we like to say is that the genetics loads the gun and the environment pulls the trigger. So we can have this sort of perfect storm of someone who has a genetic predisposition and then has some sort of struggle with their mental health issues. They have a some sort of depression or anxiety going on. And then there's the environment stuff. They're stuck in diet culture. They've been bullied, um, a trauma history. They were overweight growing up and they were made to feel like they have to change their body. Um, struggling to cope with their emotions is, you know, all of this creates a perfect storm. And not to say that when one thing happens and this person develops an eating disorder, but when all of them happen together, that's when someone would. I think there are so many different situations that can cause this. And it sounds like a lot of it has to deal with this dislike, this hatred of our bodies, our hatred of what is and wanting something that isn't, you know, this kind of other type of body, this quote, perfect body that we imagine, whatever that is but people are generally not happy with who they are now. There's, you know, a dislike or a hatred of their body. And I think women in general, disordered eating or not, can feel this feeling quite often. How can women in particular start to love their body and kind of divorce themselves from everything that they've been conditioned for their whole life? (laughs) So this is also a tricky question, because if it was as simple as some of the things that I can delineate, then no one would be struggling. And I would say just off the bat, it's usually around something that's a lot deeper than just someone's body image. So if let's say they have these associations that if I were thin, I would be attractive and then find a partner. If I were thin, then I would be liked and have friends. If I were thin, I would be happy. So a lot of this is really understanding what a person is trying to attain by focusing on the thin ideal is very, very important. But just kind of focusing on the body image itself, you know, what's very helpful sometimes is to focus on what our bodies do for us. So a certain amount of gratitude, you know. I look at my hands and what do they do for me? So, so much. My brain, my legs, I can walk. My body functions in so many different beautiful ways. And starting to appreciate what it does do for me kind of can help combat the feelings that it's not good enough or I don't like it. And also focusing on that the goal is maybe not to love our body if that feels like it's not feasible for someone but that I can be okay with it. I can accept it. And everybody knows for themselves what is a realistic goal for them. 
Yeah, I think acceptance is key. You know, loving yourself is a higher goal, but accepting is just kind of where we want to be. We don't love it or hate it. We just accept things as they are. And, you know, in my work in therapy over the years, it's been such an important lesson to learn to accept what is and kind of get rid of that resistance of what isn't. You know, it's that kind of attraction to all these things that I want it to be this way, I want it to be this way. And that's what causes the suffering is that you want things to be this way, but they're this way. And in that gap, there's all of the suffering. And so if we can learn how to accept things as they are, accept ourselves as we are. And I love the point that you mentioned about kind of practicing gratitude with our bodies. I know right now in the pandemic, I'm like, I'm so glad my body is keeping me healthy. You know, like, I'm so glad that it's gotten me through this entire time. I know there's a lot of kind of jokes about the COVID-15 or the the COVID-19, like weight gain. There's like so many jokes about people gaining weight right now, which I think is not particularly funny. Um, But I think right now we really need to focus on that our bodies are keeping us healthy in a global pandemic, you know, whether you've gained weight or not. And we don't need to demonize weight gain. That's not necessarily the problem. You know, we need to accept ourselves as we are and appreciate that our bodies are doing the hard work of keeping ourselves healthy. Absolutely. And also a certain amount of gaining confidence in ourselves, you know, putting our body aside. So, I am a friend, I am a sister, I am a mom, I am a daughter, I am whoever I am at work, I do good work, I have good relationships. There are so many different ways we can identify and build our level of confidence that doesn't have to be around our bodies. Like We are so much deeper than what meets the eye, and it's such a shame to keep focusing on what we look like. Oh, yes, I love that. I think that is so important. And if women in particular could just be seen for their whole selves and not just what they look like. I know so many of us just grow up in this conditioned environment of you are how you look, you are your appearance and your beauty. And, you know, that does such a disservice for so many people. And kind of on that note, in relation to disordered eating, do you recommend that people who are suffering from disordered eating kind of stay off social media, kind of have a, you know, avoid media or anything that might be triggering? Yeah, well, I would say what's probably useful is if somebody is following a a person who is triggering them, or is friends with somebody who keeps posting something that's triggering, stop being connected to them and follow more body positive people. Um, Connect with people who are promoting healthy body image messages. I love that and think that's so important. You know, you're totally right. We can't just completely stay off Instagram or Facebook, but you can go through your followers list and clean things up so that you are creating an environment that is healthy so that every time that you are logging in, you're seeing things that you like and that you're not being triggered by. I, you know, stopped drinking four months ago and I used to be a, you know, Epicurean cocktail lover. I followed all of these alcohol accounts and I just went through Instagram and unfollowed, unfollowed, unfollowed. Cause I was like, I don't, want to see this every day if I'm not drinking anymore. And it was so wonderful to just clean up my feed. And I highly recommend everyone do that for their own mental health. So last question, I'm curious, how can people improve their relationship with food? 
Yes. This is a loaded question, again, because it sometimes takes so long to do. But I would say the first step is to organize things almost visually. So not visually, I mean, just on the surface. So with food, that means um, starting to eat a little bit more regularly, three meals and a couple snacks with all of the components. Once we kind of have our body realize that we're going to feed it regularly, not too much, not too little, it'll start to trust us to give us the hunger fullness cues. And then when we see these sorts of urges come up, we can tease out what's emotional and then actually address what's underneath the restrict, the binge, whatever it might be. Um, similarly, with money, to work with a financial or a financial mental health professional to organize budgeting or a long-term plan for debt management or you know anything related to money so that once it's organized, then we can tease out what's emotional here and then work toward healing the relationship with food and money. Um, totally not biased here, but I think that the bulk of this work happens with a mental health professional. Definitely. I think, you know, a lot of healing comes with the help of a third party that is unbiased. I am totally pro-therapy for anyone at any time. You do not have to have a problem. You can see a therapist before, during, or after any kind of big issue because it's just so helpful to have a third party who's not your family, who's not your friend, who can give you unbiased advice and help you see things in new ways. I know, you know, my therapist who I was working with for three and a half years, she helped me see things in such different ways where I was thinking like, I would have never thought that on myself, like the way that my mind works, I just would have never come up with that solution. But because she's seeing it from the outside and looking in, she was like, what about this way? And it's like, oh, wow, that's a great solution. So definitely getting the help that you need is so important. And I really think you, know, you mentioned kind of this, this awareness. I think awareness is so huge when it comes to both food and money. We all have a lot of triggers. You know, I also have talked about the importance of knowing your spending triggers. You know, is it because you're depressed? Is it because you're bored? Is it because you're tired? Is it because you're hungry? Is there anything else that you would love to share about either disordered eating, anything about mental health or money? Well, I think that, you know, just something that I've, I've mentioned, but only want to highlight is that talking, talking, talking is so important. Once we, you know, break through the shame and the secrecy about what's going on with our relationship with money or relationship with food, then and only then can we start to heal. So encourage anybody who's listening, if you're struggling on any level, it doesn't have to be something that's so, so severe, but if you're struggling at all, just talk to someone. Thank you so much. I totally agree with that. Getting out of that shame and guilt cycle is so important. Those are the kind of two most common emotions that I hear, you know, with people in debt, they're just feeling so much shame and so much guilt and, you know, starting to talk about it and normalize it, normalizing it can really help us kind of move forward in our own healing. Well, thank you so much for being on the show. I appreciate you being here. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for listening to the Mental Health and Wealth Show. Want more content and support? 
Sign up for the Mental Hump newsletter and get our free mental health and money inventory worksheet. You can sign up at mentalhealthandwealth.com and also check out our other blog posts and podcast episodes. Also, we host a mental health and wealth hangout every other Thursday over Zoom at 5 p.m. Pacific to chat about all things money and mental health. The best part, it is free. If you'd like to support the podcast, it would mean so much to me if you left a review. And you can also support me at ko-fi.com forward slash Melanie Lockhart. And lastly, I want to remind you to do something for yourself to take care of your mental health and wealth.